0: Continuing our mini series, this next episode focuses on Philmont's forestry management throughout time. Discussing this complicated and diverse topic, John Sully and Zach Seeger joined the show. John Sully worked seasonally from 1999 to 2014, the majority of that time dedicated to the conservation department. John was the first ever full time director of conservation from 2015 through 2018. Zach Seeger worked seasonally in the conservation department from 2012 to 2016 and served as the first-ever full-time forester from 2016 through 2019. Once again, this mini-series is sponsored by Limmer Boot Company. Over 100 years, Limmer has been known for providing the highest quality boots built to last for generations with the only true single-piece leather upper design. If you're in search of your last pair of hiking boots— owner Chris Sawyer, looks forward to sharing how Limmer Boots are different. Check out the reviews online and visit LimmerBoots.com to learn more. So to kick off this in-depth interview, Zach discusses Philmont's historic fire regime in conjunction with compounding changes in the forestry industry throughout time. He also examines Philmont's first commercial timber harvests and unpacks in detail the forestry practices of resistance, resilience, and transition. John then reminds us of the many people and places involved in the story of Philmont's forestry management and how different universal beliefs and values regarding fire, logging, and wilderness have shaped the story. John praises the community engagement of the Cimarron Watershed Alliance and advocates for broadened, uninterrupted, and more committed forestry at Philmont. Lastly, both John and Zach reflect on their experiences working with seasonal staff and professional fire crews during the 2018 Ute Park fire. They also share the story of the vitally important forestry work crew program, which they spearheaded into origin in 2016. Since 2003, the Philmont Ranch Committee, via the Philmont Forest Management Policy, became certified through the Sustainable Forestry Initiative. This rigorous annual audit ensures that Philmont's forests are being managed at the highest level of sustainability with regard to the complexity and variability across Philmont's landscape. All right, you guys, I am here this evening with Zach Seeger and John Sully. Zach, you're coming from Oregon and John is in Wisconsin. I'm in Iowa. So you guys are joining the show today to continue with our Wildland Fire feature series. Really excited to have you guys on the show. Thanks for dedicating time, making time. Just so you guys can introduce yourselves to the listeners, for those of you who don't know these two gentlemen already, um, we'll do just a brief background or origin story or whatever you'd like to share to introduce yourself. So, John, if you want to go first, go at it.
1: Sure thing. Uh, Caitlin, thanks for having us on here Um, when you reached out to us a few days ago. I, I started getting pretty excited. This topic of Philmont forestry has been a big deal uh, for most of my life. I've worked on it, um, and I'm happy to share my experiences. I, I came out to Philmont as a, as a Boy Scout on regular treks in 1995 and 97. And from the first moment that I was there, I just wanted to work there. And I started out in the ranger department. Um, I spent a summer in logistics, and that summer was 2002 with the Poneal Complex Fire. And I joined the conservation department that fall, and um, I guess I kind of never looked back. It was all conservation for the next 15 or 16 years. Um, I worked on all the fire rehab efforts after the Poneal complex fire. I was involved really heavily leading the camper conservation program. I, we re invented the field manager position and I held that. And then I was a seasonal director. Um, and I was the first person to have the full time director position in the department starting in 2015 um and in all that experience i was really fortunate to work with a lot of amazing people and to have a crew of like friends and co-conspirators that were just interested in making film on a better place and ensuring that it would be there for 75 more years As uh, Mark Anderson would have put it when I started, he'd say, this is John. He's the first full-time conservation person, and his job is to make sure there are 75 more years of Philmont. Um, And right around that time uh, in, I think, 2012 is when I met my partner here, Zach Seeger. So I'll turn it over to him.
2: Hello, Um Caitlin. Thanks for having me here. It's awesome. I've actually uh, thought about, you know, if I was ever asked to do a podcast, would I, what would happen? And when all this kicked off, I'm like, well, this is just natural. I have to say yes. So, yeah, my origin story of Philmont, I actually went on Trek in 2004 as, with my troop. Went, you know, did the whole experience, went up North Country over, over, over Baldy, over the tooth. And I was like, cool. Crossed it off my my, uh, scouting bucket list, and uh, I actually didn't think about it for a while. Um, In 2012, I was uh, TAing a GIS course at Purdue, um, getting ready to graduate. And one of my students, Kevin O'Brien, was like, hey, have you thought about working at Philmont for the summer? And I was like, no. He goes, well, they do GIS, and they need some GIS people. I was like, oh, well, that sounds sweet. So I applied. Got hired on, met, started working for John, started doing, you know, just started making maps, started doing a bunch of odd projects, started doing <laughs> just going out and doing John or Mike Serio grabbing. It's like, hey, Zach, let's go do something else today. Let's go. Let's go walk this creek. Let's go get let's go find this mysterious blob on the map. And then ever since then, there was no looking back. Worked, worked cons, worked various roles. Uh then I got hired full time in two thousand sixteen and uh that was the first forester for Philmont full time
0: so twenty sixteen was the first time Philmont ever had a full time forester
2: we had uh prior to that we had consultants, but on staff it was the first year
0: okay, got it.
1: I think I'd like to just kind of lead off with a little statement that this subject of forest management at Philmont, it's so enormous and complicated and it extends through time. You know, uh Zach will probably tell us about some of this historical land use and maybe walk us through some of the historical things while Philmont existed that affect the forest today and the fire behavior that we see and and what are what the crews out there do on the ground now, but it's just, there's so many people involved in this story and so many places and, and so much going on at film on and in society. It's just important to remember that like, this is not an easy problem to solve. And all the people and that we've worked with that we've heard about the stories that we'll tell, like those were people who loved Philmont um, as much as we do and they were doing what they what they could with what they had. And some people had better luck than others. Some time periods were more successful at managing force than others, but as we move through the story, it's just you need this context to appreciate what is happening at Philmont now. Um, so just keep keep that in mind. Um, and hopefully Zach and I can like bounce some questions off each other as well. That's why I think we wanted to do this together because we're both holding a little bit different version of the same story and it's a chance to just check each other's memory and make sure that that we're given this topic like a full examination. To
2: tag on with John, I mean, Philmont's this really interesting microchasm of of the of Western issues. It's like anything that happened in the American Southwest, the Rockies, happened on Philmont. and so you're seeing all the compounding, and it's really easy to talk about it in one spot. And the, we've heard Mary and we've heard Daniel talk about all these things. And it's just really cool. You can focus on one landscape and just say from start to finish, we've seen it all. Let's just walk through the history and you can start seeing the compounding changes through time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, guys. It was really great to have Daniel on the show because I feel like he gave people kind of an introduction of fire ecology and and how fire burns and why we're seeing, you know, with climate change and everything, so so many more big fires. Um, so I guess with you guys, I'd really like to focus in on on that microcasm of Philmont and talk a little bit more about Philmont specifics that you guys were able to see during your time at the ranch and and engage in and, and work to continue and to change. So I guess I'd say maybe we take it back to maybe a, a bit of a history lesson regarding Philmont's forestry management program or policy.
2: Like Daniel and Mary talked about the ranch burned, like how fire works. One thing I have noticed we've never talked about is fire on the landscape itself, how it changed, how it changed on the landscape is like prehistoric conditions. And I kind of think it'd be worth starting at that point. So you kind of get this baseline theory in your mind of realizing, Oh wow, 70, 80% of Philmont burned every day. 35 years or less, and then transition into the history where it compounds all the changes to driving it to here we are, so many years removed.
0: moved. Okay, so Zach, as I have been doing some research on this topic, I have noticed the word, the phrase come up of fire regime. And if you could tell us a little bit about specifically Philmont, what its historic fire re- regime would have looked like. And um, what we're seeing at Philmont today in kind of a 150-year span?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So fire regime, return interval, um, we're going to kind of use those a little bit interchangeably. Um, across the landscape varied. We're, we'll start at the base. We'll start, we'll start at the 6,000-foot elevation and work our way upwards. So starting at six thousand feet going across, you have the grasslands. Um, you're talking one to five, zero, like you're talking very frequent fire return intervals. Fires going, either through anthropomorphic use of fire or through natural fire starts. Fire is just constantly burning these grasslands. From the grasslands itself, working up the elevations, you have pinyon juniper forest, you have oak woodlands. And amongst those, there's some variabilities, but I'm going to speak very generically. I'm I'm not going to get in the weeds here because you can go on forever. But generically, as you go through, the fire interval kind of maintained the same. They constantly burn and patches your areas you wouldn't burn, but you would constantly move this ebb and flow, which would maintain a mosaic landscape across these keeps pinion juniper from invading into the grassland, keep the oak woodlands open. From that, you get through your Start introducing your ponderosas up in elevation. Think about this starting at the base of Tooth Ridge on the north side, um, stockade ridge area, uh, Rock, uh, Rocky Mountain Scout Camp. Um, you start going up in elevation from that point. Um, ponderosa pine ecosystem, majority of Philmont was in this cut type of system, be it ponderosa woodland, oak woodland, ponderosa mix. Um, and that's like you're talking five, you're talking to five to 15, five to 20 intervals. So you think about that way, grass is moving up, the fire rolls up, fire is following into these ponderous systems, maintaining this open structure, as Mary Stuver and Daniel's talked about in previous podcasts. From that, you start altering into what we call a dry mix conifer forest. You start introducing species like dug fir, limber pine, um, and you get smattering some other species here and there, depending on topography. And there you're talking about fire intervals start entering that 35, 25, 35 to 25 to 50 years. You start getting a little bit longer, but it's pretty consistent. um, Still maintaining. I've heard uh, there's some literature out there that describes it as where a ponderosa pine forest was described as a ocean of grass with islands of trees. The dry mixed conifer was an ocean of trees with islands of grass. So you think about it more of a closed forest still open underneath, but you had pockets of these openings amongst the forest. So you go from mostly grass to tree and grass with little meadow complexes. And then from that, you transition to the wet mix forest. And that's usually classified as fire intervals as 75 plus. Um, And that's like your your spruce, your true firs start coming in. From here, you're talking about the Bobian Fowler type of elevation gradient. Um, there's some, you know, wiggle room between the two, but there you're still having fire. Other places, it, it all depends on where you go. But you're talking like still 60, 70 percent tree canopy, a lot of intermix of open space in between, be it shrub or grass. From that, you finally move into your higher elevations, your true, your subalpines, your true spruce forests, Clear Creek country, going up in the Baldy region. Um, into subalpine, and there you're talking about these long-term fire intervals. You're talking 100-plus-year return intervals. And those intervals are mostly what we'd call a standard placement event, where when fire does burn in there, it's a fire... It normally would burn hot and heavy, which would also allow, though, for aspen to start coming back into the zone. It's a grand mosaic across the landscape. So... Starting, you know, turn this. You got Mary talked about this, and Daniel talked about this. You have the railroad, you have logging, you have mining, and then you have ranching, and you have the removal of anthropomorphic use of fire. Fire was been used as a tool in any part of the country, you name it. Fire has been used as a management tool, but as Philmont starts becoming a camp, um, the big your the big thing you're started doing is a fire exclusion. But that's following the national model. It's, it's actually the common accepted practice across the country is fire's bad. Let's stop it. Nothing good comes out of it. From that, logging was still pretty active, was still pretty active on the ranch. But it's not logging as you'd think of as a, it's it's more of an older model of logging. It's more of a high grading. You're, you're trying to maximize the amount of volume that comes out of each acre. Um, from that, you're you're whacking, as one of my old professors in co- college school, uh, college would say, you're whacking and stacking. You're just cutting it, piling it, and you're shipping it, making the lumber. Um, from that, as we know, nothing really decomposes in Philmont. It takes a long time for stuff to break down. So all that slash is just being laid on the ground, and that start, you're starting to build up some fuel right there. So it's these large-scale clear cuts. You're starting to alter then your forest compositions, um, Apache, Bobian kind of country. Up around Clear Creek, You're, you can see remnants of these stands that were clear cut. Now it's just growing and thick. It's, it's, it's thicker than it would have. Some of it generated aspen, a lot of it came back to conifer. With that, we maintain ranching, still removal of fine fuels, meadows. You start losing your meadow complexes. You're either through the altering hydrology, which is allowing conifers to creep into the landscape, or your removal of fine fuels without the fire. In your drier systems, the trees are still are allowed to kind of regenerate and nothing knocks them back. So they just keep coming, keep shrinking that grass line up. Another interesting point to make, campfires. And this and this is kind of goes back and forth um, depending on who you talk to. Um, There's been a lot of people talking about back in their Philmont experiences. You talk to the old timers, talk about they'd have to walk a quarter to half a mile to find firewood. And so you're like you have these localized in a good way. You have these localized area around trail camps where there's there's hypothetically this loss of fuel around these areas because everybody's burning it for staff cabins or for trail camps to cook with to heat the buildings, just to have campfires in the evenings. I mean but that's still there's still large areas of this fuel's building. i heard a story of a I think it was in the nineteen sixties, this guy uh someone is at Philmont. And he talked about they witnessed a fire escape a fire ring. And they're like, I'm not worried about it, because there's there wasn't a lot of fuel in the camp, so they kind of burned out and it like burned down to the trail and it died. So it seems like and some anecdotal evidence that fire kind of still played a role around some trail camps. So the nineteen seventies, um, we started creating these natural areas. And that's because the no logging policy came into play, right?
1: yeah um nationally ideas about wilderness preservation, and like a shifting attitude towards like natural spaces and away from uh certain types of logging was happening, and that caught a hold at Philmont. People had this like realization that they didn't really like what they saw. Um, in the Apache country with that cutting practices out there and they did, they started to talk about regions of Philmont as these natural areas. And some of this talk was modeled after the, the wilderness act, which set aside federal land under like a specific, kind of hands-off management regime and you'll see these natural areas on maps from that period like they're they're hanging in the dining hall they're in the museum you can check out the museum's online archives and see and watch Philmont's maps change over time and you'll see these things appear and disappear um and and they reflect people's belief that if they left the land alone, it would stay the way it was the way that they loved it. And, um, that was really well intentioned, but it ultimately was kind of uninformed opinion to hold And what has become evident across the landscape at Philmont and everywhere else is that there's nothing on that landscape that is static. Nothing will stay the way it is. And if you, that there really isn't this unmanaged wilderness. And the other side that was left out is like, a landscape that was truly uninfluenced by humans would have fire like Zach described. So we, we backed off on timber harvest, but we kept buckled down on fire suppression. So we took away the one thing that was removing forest material and we continued to suppress fire and for years we uh, that's how it was. There was no logging, there was no fire. Um, it was I listened to Mary Stuver's interview the other day as well and I she had talked about pleading with the program director for forestry and management of Philmont's landscape and you know she wasn't the only person, in that era who was saying like this is not what the land needs the land needs thoughtful intentional management and we have the scientific knowledge and the experience and the human resources to move this conversation forward to manage Philmont's forests towards like healthier and more resilient systems. And one of the people in Philmont history that like I believe was carrying that conversation forward in the 80s was Bob Ricklofs. Bob rickliffe served as Philmont's ranch superintendent for for decades, I think over 30 years. Um, in that position and, and Bob retired at about the time when my full-time job at Philmont was created and I was fortunate to, he, he just pulled up to the conservation office one morning and he was like, he was like, Hey, do you have, uh, some time to go? ride around a little and I said yeah I do and he said I want to talk about forestry it seems like you might be the person who's working on this who's working on this next and he took me out and we we just did a little tour through some of Philmont's recent logging and some places that were affected by the Poneal fire and it wasn't really about pointing out those places, but those places were the setting for Bob to tell me the story about how he had noticed changes on the landscape and had talked to people like Mary Stuver and and how he had advocated for forestry and land management starting in the 1980s and Bob's advocacy is what led Philmont to hire a contract forester to begin planning commercial timber harvest again he created um like a wood cutting crew that cut in forests at Philmont and they use the wood for firewood at the backcountry camps Um, And there's evidence of this all over the place. There's a particular spot in base camp that I call the culvert graveyard. And that is a very good description of it. Like there are pieces of culverts lying all around and, and other things. And one of the things that is there is this device called the radio horse. That was a huge winch that this, woodcutting crew used um to skid logs down from their work site and you know there are folks on the ranch that that worked on that crew that i've like known and worked with over the years so that's my that's my piece i want to like thank bob ricklis for moving that conversation forward with the ranch committee and with the rest of the professional team now I'm gonna ask if Zach would pick up a little bit of the story here and and tell us about those first commercial timber harvests in the 90s.
2: You betcha, bud. I I, I do have to do one more plug on the the concept of wilderness. Working recently, being able to work with the tribal communities and on tribal forests, they would I I would have I'd be slapped if I didn't say this phrase that there is no such thing as wilderness. The land has always been managed. So the the concept of wilderness itself is a folly from the, the from the tribal perspective. So the early timber sales, so the early timber sales were done through. Uh, a contract with their contractor. Um, again, it was well-intentioned. It was starting the boots on the ground. It's starting to get things going. Um, we still had some markets still in New Mexico. they were still able to actually move some volume, move some timber. Um, but the already, but we already had constraints in place. The, the practices that were allowed by the ranch, by the ranch really put some limiting factors. Like you can only remove X amount of percent of the canopy was a good start, but it was just it was just the beginning.
1: One thing um to note that in addition to this commercial timber harvesting, <laughs> Philmont's employees, the seasonal staff, the conservation department and others had engaged in like smaller scale fuel management projects sporadically over all of these decades. Even through the commercial harvest kind of moratorium people were doing these smaller like they called them TSI timber stand improvement conservation projects with crews um and the and this work was really uh popular in in the 90s like in conjunction with the resurgence of commercial harvesting there was a quite sizable tsi project um on dean skyline just to the east of head of dean and uh you know kevin Stickleman talked about going up there in his interview um about him nancy and doug driving up into that and seeing how the fire behavior changed in the Pono complex fire, how it was different in that TSI site. And I worked there as a fire rehab conservationist. Um, and every day, every morning I'd be up walking through the part that was had been managed by crews that still had some needles. And then you would emerge on the other side into like the full on ash and black trees. And that's where we'd start spreading straw. Um, was the Eastern boundary of that project essentially.
2: Starting the 1990s, 1994 is when we did our first commercial timber sale and that 1994, 1995, 96 we started working in the lover's leap miners country the main areas of focus as we started working over that country up kind of near fowler pass trail peak on the way to Bobien, it's the cimarron Cito country it was kind of the Yuraca in the north side of tooth ridge it was kind of the and Clark fork it was kind of like the epicenters of the beginning of these regions Like I said, we were—they're limited. I think it was like thirty percent reduction in crown canopy. And you're talking when you're talking like ponderosas, they have huge crowns, Um, and so you remove—if you remove a single tree in some of these areas—that was thirty percent of the canopy. Um, And so you were—it was very picky and choosy. And since a premise at this point in time was that the the forestry should be able to pay for itself, that led to kind of this natural selection of higher value species and higher value logs, which ended up kind of t- returning itself into this a little bit more ecologically friendly, but still call, but still a high grading scenario. You were taking species like Ponderosa more out because there's a little more higher value or dug fir, but you end up leaving less fire resistant species still in these zones. You left a lot of white fir in these regions. And then the end results, you know, uh, hindsight looking back is always easier. Um, the end results of these, of these were kind of you increase the levels of understory fuels, you really are allowed species to pop up afterwards. You stir the the duff layer and everything like that, and you started increasing your white furs your junipers, and you started getting this really thick understory back into these zones. Um, so well intentioned, it's you know twenty years later, you're like, oh man, that didn't quite have the results I we we were hoping for. And in this point in time, as John mentioned, we the complex fire happened. Kind of the first trigger point and kind of the, the road of, of this forestry conversation.
0: So as far as I know, the only f- big fire I've ever heard of, heard people talk about is the 2002 Polonial Complex Fire. And then, of course, you Park. And now we're talking about the Cooks Peak Fire. Are there any other big fires in that I just don't know of?
2: I mean, in nineteen ninety six, there was a uh, prescribed burn that was done on Uraka that kind of did some slop over, and it, it burned a little more acres than it intended to. Um,
1: okay.
2: The Casa Fire, when was that? Do you remember, John? Uh,
1: that was in two thousand six, and that was mostly um, grassland along Highway twenty one, like from Miami Lake all the way up to the museum. It was a pretty. That was a pretty big fire. That was, um, I think a surprise, but it happened in the preseason part of the year. Like I remember showing up for a team that year and like that fire was already over. Like there weren't any, there weren't any seasonal staff really on the ranch, uh, in between like the end of winter adventure and the beginning of conservation a team, which was typically on, like, May 7th. There are other fires in this time period that we're talking about. In the 70s, there were a series of large wildfires on Wilson Mesa. But to my knowledge, there's no... For all of Philmont's history, prior to the Poneo Complex fire, there's not, like, a large, notable wildfire that's burning in the big forest country it's just this like lightning is starting fires but we're very very good at putting them out and and that's just kind of the that's the policy you were starting to see even starting like when mary stewart was in college in the 70s like prescribed fire was getting attention in the forest management community people were recognizing that excluding fire from the landscape had these kind of dire ecological consequences and folks were were researching like fire ecology was beginning to grow as a field of study it took a while you know for a lot of even state agencies and whatnot but especially for private landowners to like come into a place where like they understood the necessity of prescribed fire as a management tool and poneal the poneal complex fire is right is dead center in that that shift in this conversation nationally like that is really the beginning of or like towards the beginning of this kind of modern like mega fire era that we live in um that same summer in 2002 there were ponio was the largest fire in new mexico's history arizona had the largest fire in their history oregon had the largest fire in their history uh colorado had the largest fire in their history southern california like fires that we now experience annually the fall of 2002 was one of the first really big bad fire years in southern california and it was a wake-up call for i think the broader land management community that what these foresters and ecologists and folks had been researching and saying and and encouraging Really re- required a second look. Like, they had to, people had to start committing to the kinds of practices that, like, we're about to start talking about.
0: Does Philmont currently do prescribed burns or have they ever done any in the past?
2: Yes. Mostly focused around grasslands, pasture improvements, irrigation improvements. Um, I think actually this last year they, the The fire, uh, the fire department did a grass burn up near uh, the Cedar Road area uh, this this past spring, but in the timber country, not so much. I think 1996 was the first and last, and the last uh, time that fire was done a uh, prescribed fire was done in timber. But other than that, I mean, um, you pile burns. Philmont actively is in the pile burning program again.
1: And when you think about um, like applying using fire for burning piles versus like broadcast burning, which is kind of the prescribed fire that we're talking about. It, Philmont didn't do that on a large scale until we essentially kind of reimagined what a forestry work crew would look like in 2016. Um, and it's, I think it's, I was shocked to learn in those years that other big land managers, including like the New Mexico department of game and fish had also not been either broadcast burning or pile burning their habitat department was, trying to ramp up pile burning and broadcast burning in the same time period when we were, Zach and I were advocating for pile burning at Philmont and we were fortunate to help um, some of our partners do some of the first pile burns on the Colin Neblet. That was in
2: 2018, wasn't it?
1: Well, yeah, I think it was. They Jacob (laughs) Davidson, who's like, The state level habitat biologist but he started in new mexico as a regional habitat biologist in our region so we had worked with him for years on the barker and then colin neblet he called and we had continued to stay in touch and he he called up zach and i one day and and he was like hey we have all these piles that these contractors piled and we I have all my staff lined up and they, they're they all just got their red cards this year and we hired a burn boss to write the prescription for this pile burn. And he's like, but the thing we could really, he's like, we had these community meetings in, in Eagle Nest because we think there's going to be a lot of smoke and we want people to know what we're doing. And he said, the thing that we don't have that would really help us is a fire truck. <laughs> and he said, Do you do you think that like you and Zach or anyone else from the Philmont Fire Department could come um and support this burn and like have a fire truck? And so Zach and I you know worked it out with the fire chief with like Nick and Nate and uh they let us take a fire truck and help with that pile burn.
2: That was uh, yeah when we got introduced to the four years guilds for the first time too.
1: That was an exciting, there was <laughs> one exciting day on that pile burn where the wind you, normally as, as uh, Daniel mentioned, like you would burn piles when the ground was, there was snow cover on the ground and they had written this weather prescription that would allow for like only partial snow cover and they they decided to ignite these piles that like we got a little little spreading surface fire spent some time like cutting line on that pile burn and then the next day
2: john and i went to Miners park and lit some piles that we created in 2016 and but we had about 14 inches of snow
1: yeah there was a lot of snow that day and we were not very good at making piles no then i actually what we we learned what we learned from that informed all the work that ended up happening in the film recovery corps you know and we could say from our experience like definitively that piles had to be constructed in a very specific way or they just yeah they just don't burn
2: I would like to add uh while we were i did i fired up the old r g i s engine There's one other fire of note, which is the nineteen ninety eight which is called the beard fire
1: that's a good uh, point
2: i that was the only other one I could find, but that was encompassed again in the two thousand and two complex fire but um other fire of
1: note thank you for um fact checking me on that because and I should have known that one because I had stayed at Dan beard on two treks. And I came back as a ranger, and I went to Dan Beard like three times in 1999. So that fire had occurred in between my treks and my experience as a ranger. And I, I do remember that that burned area.
0: Okay, so we've been talking for about 50 minutes about... A lot of awesome content here, you know, going forward in your opinions through what you've seen, what would be an ideal scenario for what the ranch could do going forward? Uh,
2: I, I will start unpacking it on it on the, on the ground operations. Um, and then we can move into the uh, higher echelon of the, how do you recruit the appropriate people to do the work? So this, so you know, we've there's been a lot of work. There's been a lot of change of the landscape, and it, it it comes down to you have to put fire back on the ground. But to put fire back in the ground, you have to you have to mitigate the fuel load. You have to get in there, and you have to make it so the fire will do the thing you want it to do. Either that, I'm putting the fire back on the ground, but I'm in the royal eye the nature or the lightning's putting the fire back in the ground or the proverbial cow kicks over the lantern, puts the fire back in the ground. We have to get the ground ready to recept, accept the fire and the, and we have a chance that it's going to behave according to some type of uh, plan. And so it goes down into, into like looking the landscape and managing this in bite-sized chunks. I mean, you have to think about where can you make the biggest bang for your buck? I mean, the New Mexico State Forestry practice is a, a, a really limits ground-based operations, especially for mm. mechanical means. The slope's 40% or less. When you start looking at the landscape at Fulmont, there's, there's that's not the, the most notable feature. You're, you're, you start already self-isolating these pockets. Not only do you have your landscape you're dealing with, but you're also dealing with what's left over. I know Daniel and Mary talked a lot about well, what is climate doing? How, what is this changing? And so I actually was reading a paper earlier this week that was talking about adaptation to climate change. I think Daniel may have referenced the same paper, but it's a coincidence that we both read it. Anyway, so there's like different treatments. There's like resistance treatments, resilience treatments, and transition treatments. Transition treatments is the concept that you're taking a forest type and you're already preparing it to move to a different forest type. So your dry mix conifer, you're moving, you already know the site's getting drier. Ponderosa pines probably going to be your best chance. It's going to live in that site. So you're already moving it to ponderosa pine forest. You're not trying to maintain what it is. You're already saying, you're already making decisions to say, look, I'm hedging my bets. We're going to push you this way. Moving dry mix to wet mix, et cetera, et cetera. You're kind of already making the change. You're looking at the landscape, reading the signs and making the change. You also can do resilience type of treatments, which is looking like a ponderosa pine forest, a pinion juniper forest. Saying, you know what, I think you can make it. We are going to actively go in here. We're going to restore this back to his back to his prehistoric conditions as close as possible. We are going to restore form and function. We are going to we're going to thin it. We're going to burn it. We're going to keep burning it. Um, and we we're making it do. We're making it. Be healthier because you're not only you're making it resilient to fire, but you're making it resilient to drought, to other drought, to other stressors, insects, disease. You're just really making that system more viable. And then and these other forests that you don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, like you think about the high elevation forests where you naturally would have these large scale events. That goes to the resistance where you're improving the defense of an ecosystem against anticipated changes. You're like, okay, we know you're going to burn maybe we're going to put in some patch cuts here we're going to already promote aspen across the landscape in bigger chunks to kind of break up the fuel load anticipating that this is eventually going to happen um if it if and when it's going to happen there's not much we're going to do about it at that point in time because it's it's going to have a whole head of steam so but we're going to try to make it we're going to try to just do some stuff to get ahead of it and all three of those things it's a lot of work it's Looking at the landscape, you're citing where your best where your best bang for buck is. And I bet you right now, it's that south country. It's looking at the miners' rock, your rock crater country, the Apache country, the Bobian, and all the flat ground that you can get in between Apache and Clear Creek. That's kind of where I would be focusing my efforts.
1: To follow that up, like, those are important concepts and like goals to have for the landscape. How does Philmont as an entity accomplish those goals? You know, there are a lot of, of pieces to that. And I'm going to take a second here to remind everyone that like, I don't work at Philmont anymore, but I, I do appreciate the, the assets that they have and the constraints that they have in their operation. Um, and I'm going to share a little bit of the way that Zach and myself and Mark Anderson and, and Bob and Dave Kinneke and folks have worked over the last couple of decades to, to lay the groundwork for achieving this goal that Zach has put out. Following the Pono Complex fire, that wake-up call, everybody was like, we all have the same problem. And in Colfax County, the, the, the fire operations had really brought all these people together, like different ranchers from all the large private ranches around and government agencies from like state and federal land managers – and some things grew out of that, and one of those is the Simron Watershed Alliance, which still exists, and that is a partnership between all these public and private and nonprofit entities, people that live and work in and adjacent to the Simron watershed, and they meet and they like track down funding for planning projects and implementation of of stream restoration work and they work on fire issues and they advocate for this stuff and we see where we told a story earlier where this wave of like wilderness nostalgia swept across the country and and philmont was caught up in it and we didn't log for 20 or 30 years, or we didn't harvest timber or manage our forests. Um, you know, that changed and it changed abruptly. Like people refocused their operations on timber harvest and they acknowledged that timber harvesting as a solo entity was not going to pay for itself. Um, Daniel said this on last week's show, the kind of timber harvest that's required to prepare the landscape for fire, like Zach was talking about, doesn't make money. As As a landowner or a government agency, you have to prepare to pay for that and you have to secure the funding um and the personnel and the contractors like years in advance of your intended cuts and like the state of new mexico does this through capital project commitments and so do other landowners um one of philmont's biggest neighbors vermejo park they transitioned after the pono complex fire and in the drought that followed they made a management decision that they would no longer run cattle that their livestock herd would be solely bison and that their land management focus would be on the restoration of their surface and groundwater assets and on managing their forests and they created like a funding mechanism and the time, and they found a contractor that they just pay to work continuously thinning forest. And they ramped up their prescribed fire, uh, their internal prescribed fires through partnerships with like the force stewards guild and the nature conservancy and Daniel, through, um, I forgot what his, the Ember Ember Alliance. Alliance. Yeah. You know, those folks are all, they're like, oh yeah, I've been to Vermejo and burned. I've been to Vermejo and burned. And then the state of New Mexico followed suit. The state land office is this kind of unknown land management agency in New Mexico tasked with these properties that are set aside as kind of like an endowment for funding, public services and in particular education and the forester for the state land office worked with these groups to put prescribed fire on the ground near Black Lake, really close actually to where the Cook's peak fire is burning now. And um Philmont who used to be able to say like we are doing what everyone else is doing is now starting to find themselves a little bit behind of what everyone else is doing. Resources that assist private landowners in forest management and restoration and prescribed fire are becoming very widely available in the state of New Mexico and across the West as the scope of this problem is has become apparent in the last two decades and so as a an organization you know philmont has opportunity to partner with people who can bring the expertise that daniel talked about to the table they can bring the planning experience and the implementation experience and and some of the equipment and some additional personnel opportunities are out there. It's not, it's not an easy task. It's something that that Zach and I worked on when we were there. It was like, we'll help you burn and maybe someday you'll help us burn or like we'll help through the watershed Alliance, write a forest management plan for the it Kind of with the understanding that, like, that benefits all of us, like, cleaning up the neighborhood, so to speak, by putting more fire on the landscape around Philmont, with the goal being that those partnerships create a pathway to putting fire on the ground on Philmont. And, like I said, it's been three or three and a half years. Really, since I was involved in that operation, but it's it's my hope and expectation that like those partnerships have continued to exist and that they would grow into something that that starts to chip away at this problem a little more meaningfully. Yeah, the Forest Service.
2: Nevada have done so. It's an awesome job putting fire back on the landscape, either um, through letting fire kind of a natural start, kind of go to a certain point, and saying, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna put it out," or um, igniting. I mean, they've 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 done a really good job at putting fire back in the landscape to north of our property. It's um, we've we were fortunate enough to help with a few and witness a few of those events. Um, some of it was kind of shocking because it destroyed some of our plots we put in, but um, it was still awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll I will forgive them, I suppose, for burning down our forest inventory plots <laughs> just because it was so cool to see that aerial ignition happening inside the loop road.
0: Wait. Okay. Where um, was this?
1: In uh, what year do we do we do that, Zach?
2: We did that in 2018.
1: That was 18. There was a lot of fire in 18, like there was a fire lot, there and was a bad lot of, fire.
2: Yeah, uh, we did it in beginning of April, beginning end of March. Um, and there was still yeah. snow on the ground up up there. Um, the forest yeah, service, they,
1: we were quality control checking inventory plots on the Vibe at all. like immediately before and immediately after, and the forest service burned off I think sixty five hundred acres all of the Vive at all inside the loop road. Yeah. That year.
2: I actually was fortunate enough to actually be able to run a drip torch in part of it and burn off part of the Shuri Pond Meadow system.
0: Hey folks, a quick note from our sponsor Limmer Boots. So you may ask, why are their boots unique? Limmer's single piece, full leather construction makes it possible to avoid a seam on the back of the boot. Back seams are often reinforced with synthetic materials that are unable to conform to the shape of your foot and Achilles and are prone to blowouts. With no back seam, the leather in the Limmer ergonomic heel pocket is designed to conform and move with your foot, providing support but not rigidity. So once again, if you are looking for a sustainable hiking boot, check out Limmer at Limmerboots.com. Let's hike on. I say let's
2: talk about the, you know, the forestry work crew a little bit.
1: So with this forestry work crew, like, Origin, I want to acknowledge that, like, this crew in 2016, that's not not the first forestry work crew, like— Philmont bought that wood chipper back in like two thousand eight or two thousand nine and conservation as a like the modern department had had fielded a saw crew for an almost a decade before like we had to reexamine what that crew was doing and be like. Does this make sense? Is this crew big enough? Are they working with purpose? And for me, like, this was all conceived in 2015, which was like when my position became permanent and like Zach Seeger had been kind of gone for a minute at another doing some forestry research in Indiana or all over the Midwest. But Zach returned in 2015 and we didn't know how to, he was like the field manager. And it was this opportunity to say like, we have the person and we have the stuff. And are we doing this the right way? And to scrape together all the other things that made that crew happen and like that crew and Zach's performance and having it it changed the con- conversation enough that Zach was offered a full-time job i mean it was a it was a commitment like it it kind of like tipped the balance toward forestry
2: And I actually say, John, I think the forestry, pre-forestry work crew actually started with chainsaw training that year. We prior to this point would go to sites and like, we're going to do chainsaw training because it was at the year we started building Rocky the Cope or Rocky Mountain Scout Camp.
1: That was later. Okay. But that place
2: needed some love. It was it, it was a juniper thick
1: brushy so, Rocky Mountain Scout Camp. That's what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. The new the new cope cope spot.
2: And so we went. Out, I actually went out and I marked a bunch of trees I wanted. I thought was going to be help help. Trying to do more of a let's fell trees that are already poor form, sick, ugly. We're we're going to pre mark the trees. It'll be fine. It'll be fun. Like then you don't have to think about it. Which I had my closest interaction with the rattlesnake at that point. I was out marking trees and I started hearing the rattle. And I stop. I'm looking around. I'm like, I don't see it. I look down. I'm standing on it. Paint can <laughs> goes flying. I scream. I run. Snake goes the other way. You know, immediately pulling up the pant legs. Like, oh, That was that bit. But um, anyway, I don't like snakes. They're not, they're not <laughs> friendly. Um, but the outcome of that training was uh, that initial change of how we started cutting trees wasn't really well accepted. Um, we we hit a lot of backlash internally from our own staff because we took away the sport-felling aspect of chainsaw training.
1: I agree with you that prior to that training, the selection of trees was not very well managed. I am glad that we refocused into something that has intention and serves these other forest management goals. But
2: that was the beginning. That was kind of the beginning shift for my interaction with, with the forest to start looking at it like man, we can start doing things. Like, let's let's start taking something we're already doing. let's let's implement. And from that, we had the chipper crew, the pre-existing forestry worker there, um, working on cleaning up what we did afterwards, pulling logs, shipping the material, and uh, prepping that site
1: at that point we weren't like cleared to pile burn or anything. So we weren't doing slash piles. There was one huge pile that got machine piled up and burned there to clear the actual site for the tower. Um, But that was more like equipment operators and the fire department that handled that. It wasn't so much the conservation department. In that year in 2015, you know, like you had come back to the ranch and I was stoked because I'm like, Hey, my, my buddy is coming back. This guy knows a lot of what I need. And what I really need from a field manager was someone to set an example of like how to be excited about work and like share your passion for Filmont and conservation, and I've always felt like you did an excellent job at that. That's why, like way back in twenty twelve Sirio and I were like, we want that guy to stick around, and we just kept offering you thing after <laughs> thing so that you would.
2: I just thought you enjoyed watching me suffer while you have I followed behind you hiking.
1: I do <laughs> like it when you fall down when we're <laughs> Designing trail or marking trees or whatever, but as I've aged and fallen a few more times myself, um, I've I've got a little more sympathy for you. <laughs> the forestry work crew really came out of like you and I talked about about field managing and how you appreciated the opportunity, but like trail construction and trail design and like training the work crews and doing campsites wasn't really your passion that you were passionate about, about forest management. And I was that fall of 2015, I was up on the side of Mount Phillips with like Crockett and Jay Minton and some other folks. And I was like teaching them how to design trail or like fine-tuning some ongoing training in that respect. And Jay and I were driving back, and I was like, he's always been like a really good sounding board for this stuff. And I was talking through summer kind of debrief problems, and it was like, how do we make the force work crew like something better? How do we capitalize on the skill set that we have? How do we get someone like Zach – to stay and do the thing that they're best at. I talked Jay and I, like we talked our way into this idea and I think I brought it back and, and pitched like the rough version of that to you. Do you remember that? I do. And
2: then, and that's when we kind of, uh, I guess we, we took the
1: fall crew (laughs) to, to Iraq and started doing some
2: like initial test felling projects, um, around the camp.
1: And then I what did we, you stayed through the winter, right? And we made all of the maps and helped Chris yeah. with itineraries and hired a hundred people. And, and we also schemed out this forestry work crew. Yeah. And, and I think it was, it wasn't, it wasn't a crew. It wasn't, these weren't like new personnel. The conservation department didn't, nobody was like here's some extra money and staff members you know we had to look at what at what we had and say are we using the resources we have toward the highest purpose and we think that forestry needs more attention and we're going to commit the limited resources that we have toward that end so we stripped like A person out of this or that other program in the department and how big was that first crew that you ran?
2: Oh crap. Um Oki, Bell, John, me, Lauren, Mike. Seven or eight.
1: I think it was eight. I think it was eight. Which was a big work crew. Um the (laughs) saw crew prior was probably only four or five people. We were talking about this like all winter and and anytime you want to do something new like and you're hanging out in this small group of people that's at Philmont, you start getting a lot of questions and uh kevin the general manager and was was like asking like what are you guys what are you doing how are you doing that and how did we how did we bring kevin around i feel like you did that
2: i think we but I think we went up to miners, like up to and started looking around. I think we just basically described: these are the fuel loads we're at. This is the consequence of not doing what we're what we're asking to do. I, that's what kind of what my memory goes to.
1: I remember we had like a pitch on a sheet. We were like, if we're gonna get people on board with this, we have to like it's got to fit on one piece of paper we have to be able to talk about it like with authority and justify it and i th- i feel like that's that's what we did and whether or not everyone agreed i think they finally like agreed that they would let us do it at least so we um we did you know, and I think, for from my perspective, and from working with Mark Anderson for a lot of years, and uh, the conservation department and what it does is all descended in modern times from like this vision that Mark had for how the department would treat the land, and it was like recruit a group of staff that like has skills and passion for film and like is willing to make the sacrifices that it takes to come back year after year and create opportunity for them to do so and empower them to do the right thing and that's what i think ultimately landed the four work crew was like mark saw his vision like reflected in our vision for the crew and and then we we had like the green light, and we're making those those interview phone calls.
0: For people who don't know, maybe that are listening, how is the forestry work crew, work crew different from all of their
2: work crews? We had a single purpose in life, and that was to murder as many trees as possible. And we were base camped at a certain location, and we and that's all we did. We had We were driven by a single cause, a single goal. And then when we weren't murdering trees and piling slash and taking care of our chainsaws and uh, aggressively hydrating, we were outreach to advisors and kids. And that was kind of how we were starting it. That's how we kind of started at Miners. Like we had a presence at every advisor's coffee because everybody's like, what, do, why, what are you doing? And, you know, we would, we would just field questions. and. At that particular summer, um, we decided instead of operating as like a part of the staff kind of, you know, or, you know, as adjacent, we were our own sub entity within miners. Um, we had our own, we had our own little trail camp. We set up, we actually found an old campsite. We found an old firing when we were serving the area. We kind of set up camp there. We cooked separately. We Kind of, we we did a little bit, but most of the time we kind of came, created a separation, which I think really helped in the long run, because they didn't have to worry about us going into their cabinet. Whatever, it really helped our relationship. That was kind of what was the, what, what that for that year. What forestry work crew was,
1: and, and part th- of the original skepticism about this was not people weren't like, does Philmont really need forest management? I think universally if you asked any of the staff, they would agree that like forest management is good. I mean, the ranch needs literally as much of it as it can possibly get every single day of every year. But there's, there's always been this concern about like how, how does it affect the experience of visiting Philmont? What does it do to like, the customers the campers who are at miners because it's loud it's a lot of saws it's a it's like dump trucks and chippers and it it has the potential to be disruptive but these places that happen to be the busiest camps also are the highest priority for protection And while we had done some kind of defensible space work close in to some of the cabins, you know, we're looking at miners and saying, we're going to treat, what is the buffer that we drew around miners? Do you remember? I think it was, it was close to a
2: thousand feet.
1: Um, It was like 80 acres or something. Yeah. It was, it was a chunk of crew worked in. It wasn't like, 50 feet from the cabin we're taking out junipers i mean this was like we are going to modify the fuel so that the fire is on the ground well before it reaches the things we need to operate our business like those cabins and campsites and um climbing walls and chapels and everything else that's out there um we were trying to expand like far beyond that to change fire behavior before it could approach those assets
2: that that was the goal uh we had a very determined mission we went we went for it probably the most negative interaction we ended up coming out with was the complaint that there's no place to pee Uh, (laughs) (laughs) that was probably the number one complaint we ended up getting And after you talk through like the staff and the crews and everything, they're like, Oh yeah, this makes sense. Keep, keep killing stuff. And, you know, like, but yeah, the the biggest thing was, but there's nowhere to pee. Um,
1: (laughs) You have to walk a thousand feet now. Yeah.
0: Does the forestry work crew, it has happened, you know, since then and, and kind of before then in a different fashion. And is it just seasonal at this point or does that happen all year, all year long?
2: I think it happens all year round in okay. different aspects. The, it's kind of it kind of shifted from like a camp focus, and now it's kind of look it's working on some different different pro, uh, different projects. But it's all there is still thinning happening, I believe. At least last time last time I checked in, it was still a year round process.
1: Part of doing this work is also talking about it, and I mean Zach mentioned talking about it with crews, but like that fall, you know it was a tour stop for the ranch committee and like, because miners such a gets a lot of vehicle traffic, like lots and lots of people knew this was going on. And because Zach took the time to engage with them and encourage his staff to engage with people, that message got shared, you know, and Mary talked about the way how she was frustrated by the things she heard about forestry. And that's why she wanted the visiting forester program to start. And like Zach and Mary have worked so closely together throughout his time working on Philmont's forests that, like, receiving information from him and his crew is, is like the same quality of information that Mary always wished was getting put out there. And that was important to us that we would like not be working in any opposition to that program. Like all these things need to be tightly coordinated. The, the messaging and like kind of the salesmanship side of this is that we talk about it the same way at all these different places, even though like the prescriptions vary depending on the ecosystem or how a crew is equipped or whether or not you might have campers available to help stack piles or whatever. But the, like, the story kind of remains consistent one point to take home though is that like there needs to be more and the way that these projects come into being and like are staffed and funded i mean i know that that at making that better making that more sustainable making the impact of this program broader there are people working on that people that love Philmont that still work there that, uh, see this as a priority. And as someone who like lived there and did that for a while, I, I know that it can be difficult to like gain traction, especially for things that appear expensive to me the cost of this work would always be justified and how vitally important the work of that crew or similar crews is and how it cannot be interrupted it cannot be like distracted from its priorities. The funding that runs that crew and the time that they have should be treated as sacred and protected. Mm-hmm.
0: Earlier, John, you were talking about how I think it was a Dean skyline or up ahead of Dean you had seen after the Ponyal complex fire, you had seen that that area you had treated, you know, you could tell, um, that the area had been treated with the the pine needles versus stepping into the ash, um, had the forestry work crew worked in any part of the Ute Park fire and were you guys able to see,
2: um, the forest <laughs> kind of no, um, so there was an
1: earlier effort at, there was like these ongoing fuel projects at CETO for, I mean, I had staff that worked on them when I was the director of the camphor conservation program back in like Oh four and Oh five people worked there before us. And after that, a lot of it was Zach mentioned those commercial timber harvests at, at cedo and the how that change in the like i think of it as a change in the light regime like that pumped up all of these white furs and stuff in the understory and those trees were all perfectly sized for kids with bow saws, and so was like the stuff that was growing up in the meadows and like i said folks have noticed these problems for a long time before i knew about them or were to film on and th- there was ongoing work in that area to reduce this like understory density and you know there's a really striking set of photos from Simroncito after the Ute park fire like that show, like fire behavior changing as it enters that area. I mean, there's trees with needles that clearly had this nice surface fire under them, and the backdrop 100 or 200 feet behind them is just all black, high-intensity fire. Changing those fuels gave the fire an opportunity to like calm down. And I think there was coincidentally some shifts in the weather and some other stuff that uh, was timely that helped with that. But like, but certainly the area that, that those kids cut for those decades or whatever, like fire behaved differently in there than it did next to there. So, and I think the message from that is that these projects work, they don't solve every problem and every fire. There's examples where places we invested a lot of time did experience high intensity fire and burned, but that fire burned 24, 25,000 acres in 24 hours and it. it It was insane. Nothing in its path. I mean, Mary reminded us that 80% of that burned area is, like, high intensity. Like, it's crown fire. And that's an an unheard of percentage. Like, the fire behavior on Ute Park was beyond the definition of extreme. But given an opportunity where there's just a slight change in weather, and and you look at a spot where like kids and destroyed all those bow saws, um, they uh, <laughs> it made a difference, and yeah. and the work they're doing now can make a difference.
2: For me, uh, besides the the act the activity of the thing actually happening.
1: The the, the, tra- the most traumatizing
2: event of my experience at uh, Ute Park Fire was, A, deciding what buildings could potentially live or die with the fire team, and B, being in the room when they announced that the plan, if it went, the fire went over Cedo Peak, was that they're the big box. Uh, they just drew out this giant box that this is the plan, we're going to light it up. Or we're gonna try to contain it. I just went, what? Like, can you say that one more time, please? What did you just say? And they're like, "This is this is the thing." I just went, "Holy shit!" Started the fridge, but like, my mind just didn't comprehend. Like, that. oh, this is this is the thing because the accumulation of all the fuels in this country, we can't do anything but this. Yeah. Holy crap! This is this is the thing. And that has still traumatized me to this day.
1: My side of that, when we we had the staff evacuated to the county fairgrounds in Springer, and it was a fantastic venue for three, four days of staff training um, right at the beginning of summer. But we um, we came back from that, and, you know... We're like everyone's getting back to base camp, and like I don't know in in Upar or in Springer, I was like the mayor of this encampment at the fairgrounds, and I had this like pop up like jamboree canopy, and I had lost my voice, um, and so like Robert and uh, Robert Fudge and I would we'd have these meetings like two or three times a day with like whoever was leading these little divisions of staff, you know, it'd be like a camp director or a ranger trainer or a conservation coordinator or something. Like they would come up and like, we would distribute meals. Um, It'd be like, you'd get like a bunch of trail breakfasts at 7am for like your group. And then you would come back at lunch and, we'd like give out your trail lunches and we would uh, do announcements at the same time. So everyone would be there, like ready to take notes. And I'd be like on the phone, like nonstop. My phone wouldn't say charge. So I had this huge battery pack in like my hoodie pocket and my phone was constantly plugged into it. And I like was talking to people all the time. So then we would give these, these updates and like, r- Robert and I could talk at like a normal volume, but I couldn't like project. So Robert was like n- in not an unfamiliar role, like the voice for this entire group of people. And as that wound down and we, we got to come home, it was like, no one knew what would happen. Right. We were allowed to go back to film but we weren't, we weren't allowed to go in the back country or do whatever it was. And we had this meeting and we sat down in the, in the Marchetti room at the new museum. And there's like all the full-time leadership of the ranch, you know, like Derek shiny and Joey and Eric and, me David O'Neill and like some seasonal leaders like the department head type seasonal leaders like chief rangers and and Robert and everybody we're in there and we're we're like waiting at these tables no one knows what to do or what's gonna happen and it's like kind of quiet a few people are like chit-chatting and like Kevin Dowling and Steve and Shelly come in and they give us this little update on what's going on and And Kevin's like, he's like, levels with us, and he's like, look, we have all these problems to solve, and the people in this room are the ones who are going to solve them. He's like, Steve and Shelly and I do not have time to like oversee this entire the detail of this process like we have these other commitments that involve like national and incident command and like this other stuff like real other concerns he's not trying to pass the buck he's trying to like instill this idea that the responsibility for like the future of the summer is in this room and then he's like, "So you guys need to like get it together, pick someone to be in charge, and answer these questions." And it was like, "Can we open the summer? If so, when? What? What do we have to do to like continue turning our staff?" It was like the big questions that you would think we're faced with. And then he just left and like Steve and Shelley left and there's 35, 30 people in there and everybody's kind of like looking around and Eric Martinez and I like get up and we start moving tables because they were all kind of in like auditorium seating and we were like, I'm, we're like, Eric and I are talking and we're like, we should get these tables in like a circle. Like everybody's got to be able to see each other. And then, so we're getting the tables in a circle and everybody's like still just being kind of quiet. And I'm like, well, I guess we got to look for like nominations for people to lead this group. And Nate Lay was like, whoa, I nominate you. And I was like, damn it, Nate. (laughs) I was like. Okay. Um any anybody else? And someone's like, yeah, I'd second that. And some and I was like, well, are there any other nominations? And everyone's like, no. And then there's like this unanimous like consent that I would like lead this. And and I was so honored that like my friends and family felt that way about me and I did I think an alright job. I did the best I could and everyone in that room did some amazing things over like the next few weeks, but because of that I held that role, I got to start going to those incident command briefings and that's where I I learned about the big box. It was like the first time i went kevin and i drove through the canyon on highway 64 and it was the first time i saw the burn like the center core of the burned area and we got over there and they're and they're like they're like here's the plan for today and they're giving like a weather update and operations update and they're talking about and they're like and we're going to begin like preparing this perimeter and that perimeter was it was Highway sixty four, Highway twenty one, the Morris Creek Road, and a line like essentially straight north to south down like Philmont's western boundary. It was like the containment zone for the worst case scenario of the fire was the entirety of Philmont South Country. I mean this is like this is a a type one incident command team, like the cream of the crop from the national wildfire coordinating group. And they're looking at the fuel and weather and firefighting resources they have. And they're like, this is the plan. And
2: yeah, yeah if that fire goes over COP, it's game over.
1: And then
2: Thankfully. go ahead.
1: Yeah. And then I, I came back that day and we had a meeting of this group this leadership group and kevin talked to them and we everyone like kind of turned in their homework like the tasks they had been assigned in their little subcommittees and and uh and kevin talked and then i i found it like my turn to talk and i was like this is the only thing I have to talk about. And I got like a map, an overall map of film on, and I drew the big box on it. And I mean that the reality and like weight of that hitting the room, it was just, it was, it was intense. And, Powerful, and I think it really crystallized the resolve of that team to make sure that all the work we would do would be work worth doing, as my friend Mark would say.
2: We really have to thank the Carson National Forest team, their hotshots, and their leadership team, because they literally bullied the incident management team and the rest of the hotshots and hand crews that were on that fire to do this ridiculous hand line. That saved that from happening.
1: Um, they saved Philmont. And I mean, the helicopter I dropped equipment and people and supplies onto the top of like the mountain ridge between sawmill and highway 64 and hand cut. Like Daniel was talking about like going direct. They like direct attacked fire to prevent the big box. 17 hand crews and like 150 people.
2: Paul Mondragon. I could when I say bully, I literally mean he cut, he convinced like two other hotshot teams and they're like, yeah, we're on board. Let's do this. And they literally strong armed their way to convince every other crew to agree to their plan. And the instant commander said, cool, we'll do this. But if as soon as it goes over, we're done. And God bless those men. God bless them. man it got those crews just they did some work and it got close. Um, they gear was lost. trees fire went over the line a few places. they caught it, but by God. Uh, yeah,
1: it was like unbelievable like the dedication and professionalism of those crews and just their. Like they just came around to like believe the way that we all believe that Philmont was important. And man, that was a crazy crazy week of heroic heroic acts.
0: Were any of them Philmont staff alumni?
1: Oh yeah.
2: um, there might've been a few more, but one that note, one of note, um, for yeah,
1: sure. My nomination, if you want to talk to someone about fire, who's connected to Philmont is you should talk to Jordan Mady.
0: Oh, um, yeah. Uh, Crockett texted me about him last night.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a cool story. And, yeah. and he can t- like the version of it that he can tell you. Cause he's like there and zach was there too for some of this because we that first visit i made it was really apparent to me that they did not understand Philmont, that there's 600 people over here who came to fight this fire and like they weren't connected to like the land that it was burning in and i I sh- I went to this, I would go to these like other sub meetings, like these values at risk things that Daniel mentioned and, and just talk about Philmont and yeah. talk about like a million participants coming to Philmont and, and talk about like the experiences that people have in these places. And like, I don't know, some of that probably came off as like sappy and sentimental, but, There were people in that room, like other landowners, who were like, "Yeah, that is important," (laughs) and their stuff was important too. And then ultimately, we just—I just gave them Zach Seeger, and I was like, they were asking me questions about all this GIS data we had turned over, and I and and Kevin's like, "We got to get back to the ranch. We got to get back to the ranch," and I was like. Okay, I am going to send you a person who can, like, interpret all of this for you. And how long were you there?
2: I I think I was there for like six days.
1: Um, six 16-hour days. Yeah. Talking would, about Philmont with the incident command team.
2: Yeah, it was... It was long and I just remember Kevin leaving a meeting saying we're going to save every building on the ranch and he leaves and they all look at me and like you pull out the first map they pull out is fish camp and you're like that ain't happening like let's be realistic guys this is an unrealistic expectation if there's actively a fire and they all kind of nod their heads and they go cool let's start and you're like all right start drawing on a map X's and circles. Um, wow! Yeah, then creating maps for the team. Um, we made so that GS team after we got our data, we made it. They made some really cool maps. Um, and not only that, uh, prior to that event, because I was on the fire for the first two days, and then I got kicked off the fire because we were so off our sleep schedules. I wasn't allowed to go on the fire, so I came to the office and I started just making maps for. The incident team, um, not the incident team, the firefighters who wanted better maps, we just started making the maps and just make and just sending to their personal email addresses and they, then they would administer amongst themselves. And we started with like one person and then it was like more hotshot teams started coming in. It's like, hey, can we get one of those maps?
1: <laughs>
2: um, and it then, yeah, then we escalated to just becoming a full time asset in the incident management team. <laughs>
1: You know, like, Zach Seeger made his first fire map for me in 2013 um, on White's Peak fire. And, like, I still get all my film on fire maps from Zach Seeger. Like, even during this fire, he makes a map every day and sends it to me in planning for Philmont's forest management after Poniel, and in conjunction with the development of like this modern forestry work crew the ranch elected to become certified through the sustainable forestry initiative and they had their land and timber management program evaluated by this third party under a specific set of audit criteria. And one of those criteria is that your organization, the landowner, has a forest management policy. And the ranch had had one since they began this audit process in the years following the Pono Complex fire. In, in 2018, um, with Zach and I there and, like, having gone through the U Park fire, there was a lot of momentum for forestry conversation and, and projects. And we revisited that policy. Um, and the ranch committee in the fall of 2018 – reviewed and approved um the policy that that we had edited and developed and and we did that in conjunction with other foresters that we work with and Zach floated this document through some other people's hands and the the volunteer who at the time was like the chair person for the ranching and conservation task force on the ranch committee, John McMahon, he's a forester um for his entire life and you know we worked with him and and we created this document and i think as far as i know this remains the ranch's policy i can't speak to that definitively i but i'd like to um read a little bit of this if anybody's interested Yeah,
0: let's go. Let's
1: go. All right. So this is the purpose statement from the Philmont Scout Ranch forest management policy on September 15th, 2018. The purpose of this policy is to ensure that Philmont's forest resources are managed sustainably in perpetuity. This policy is a framework within which Philmont's professional resource management staff can operate to achieve this goal. Philmont's forestry program supports all aspects of ranch operations, including recreation, livestock, wildlife, and facilities. The structure, composition, and function of our forests directly impact our ability to deliver wilderness and educational experiences that last a lifetime. Successful implementation of this policy will benefit Philmont by increasing the safety of our participants and staff, reducing the risks to our operations and infrastructure posed by wildland fire, and promoting healthy, resilient ecosystems throughout our property. And the document then it goes on for like pages describing specific objectives and how they'll be measured. And my point in sharing that is to reiterate that everyone agrees on this that management of Philmont's forests is vital to the future of the ranch and its program. This document is not a mandate to perform forest management, but it describes the things that Everyone agrees are important how to protect them during forest operations and how forest operations can benefit and promote them like forever into the future. And uh, I'm just not sure that this document gets like the notoriety that it deserves. I think there's common ground here, no matter what you think Philmont does or what you think is important. Like, I certainly recognize that forestry and the land itself is what makes all of the rest of it possible.
2: I mean, the Southwest systems, everything is tied to forest. Water, grass. I mean, it, it is all it, you, you actually you could probably link it further and say it's all tied to fire. Um they're so intertwined that removing one aspect is a cascading effect. And Philmont to maintain as we imagine it, um, these ponderous these majestic ponderous pines. It all depends on active forest management and without that without putting so much effort into that uh, our vision of the ranch as we know it will slowly turn to something else
1: everyone sat down and said this is important and it is imperative that the that forestry work at Philmont continues uninterrupted and that the scope of it is broadened and the amount of people involved in it is increased and that the real employment opportunities are created. This should not be solely a seasonal undertaking. Those kids are, suffering out there in difficult conditions on technical and dangerous projects. They're not being compensated fairly. They're not being treated like their peers in the industry. That training that Daniel talks about taking longer than like becoming a doctor. It's not like sitting in a, classroom it's like an apprenticeship where you're working through these task books and people who are higher certified than you are acknowledging that you perform this work satisfactorily and you're you are taking classes in this formal system but the class is just like that's like what opens the book and then you haul that stuff around with you from like fire to fire to fire and your crew leader or some other person you get assigned to work with, like verifies that you did those things.
2: And when they sign off, they're putting their reputation in your hands.
1: And that's why it takes so long because you might be like, you might have to demonstrate this, really specific thing like three times to do this get this book filled out and like you might have worked on 20 fires and only been in a position where that was applied like two times but if you can have a fire crew that uses fire you can like create all these training opportunities to Build the people that you need. And like the people that hold those certifications, they're not like, is there some ranch in New Mexico where I could be employed doing this? They like do it for the agency where they learn those skills, or they become consultants. They do it in the private sector under contract for the agency where they learned it. So, Philmont is in this position where like they need to contract that person to lead these projects.
2: Anecdote about the ending of the 2016 work crew, but the lessons learned. I think um, we could do that. The kind of tie that in as we talked about the beginning, but what did we learn from it? A building good piles took a lot more skill than any of us had at that moment in time. We were really bad. B, we did not achieve our goal in successfully mitigating fire behavior as it reached Miners Park. We killed a lot of juniper and we killed a lot of little trees. But there's so many little trees that we killed. It just like I, I knew there was a lot, but it was like, holy crap, this is it was a lot. A 10 and 4 schedule was really, really mean um, to the staff. You got about four days of good work out of them, and and then it just started going downhill because you were so burned out. Though having fresh commissary food really helped keep morale and health up, which was really nice. Then the other two cool things is A, the... uh, countertops they're currently two of the time traders came from Miner's Park that we fell the um and b john Selly can fell a hazard tree in the dark in his class a while it's on fire we found that out too
0: that's a beautiful thing
2: <laughs> yeah it was but it was, uh, you know
0: a little more light
2: but i figure that some of these pieces i think lessons learned was it was hard a lot of, it was really hard and you had to cut a lot more stuff than a it just you had to cut four times as much as you thought you had to cut
0: yeah
1: following up on that year you know the forestry work crew became like once you like conjure one of these new things into existence it exists and you typically get to keep having it like you don't have to sell the forestry work crew is hard every year in, in the winter of 2018 conservation got moved. It it had originally formed in the program department. Uh, what had originally formed in the ranching department in the seventies and then moved into program for like most of its existence. And under Mark Anderson's leadership, we had grown into like the department that you see pretty much today, and that existed in programming and in twenty eighteen we get there was this kind of restructure and and conservation got moved into ranching and you know I wasn't sure how I felt about that, but ultimately, I think the department does the same work in the same place. And however it's situated in this hierarchy is less important than like knowing that it will always exist, that it's initiatives and the work will continue to be supported and funded and that it will continue to grow in its like influence and productivity. Like, educational opportunities and sustainability work and forestry and stream restoration and GIS and all these things that we participate in with itinerary planning and like the production of print maps in the trading post and how much work goes into that. And with the pressures that the Boy Scouts of America are under, Nas- like financially and so forth now, like people just need to be extra vigilant about safeguarding the resources that continue the work that protects the land and people and resources of Philmont. And it just remains such a high priority. That being, being able to understand it, communicate it clearly, and fight for it are just skills that leaders at the ranch will always need. And I appreciate the people that are there leading and fighting and safeguarding those resources and this work. Um,
2: my general, I wanted to see. Thank yous to people that developed my career as a forester, especially at Philmont. Mary Stuver, Arnie Freed, who is awesome, District Forester at Cimarron. He's a great individual. Kent Reed works in New Mexico Watershed Restoration Restoration Institute. The man's a genius. Um, He would go out of his way to come up and help me talk through problems and just educate me in a southern drawl and give me a very long-winded story. To summarize it in three minutes was basically was just cut more trees. It's like if you think you cut enough, cut more. Those individuals will forever um shape me in my professional career.
1: I want to thank like a bunch of the partners that I had working at Philmont, people who taught me how to deal with not just fire and forests, but a lot of resource concerns out there and um one of those people is Gus Holm, the general manager of Vermejo Park Ranch, and um, Rick Smith, who worked with me in the Philmont Conservation Department for a lot of years, works at Vermejo. F- other folks that work with the Cimarron Watershed Alliance, uh, people from the CS Ranch, the Davis family, and like all these neighbors that make... Colfax County is such a great place to live and a great place to commit yourself and and your work. Um, I also owe like, some big thanks to Cliff Gile, who is the director of conservation um, when I was first an associate director. And he taught me how to chainsaw really, really well.
2: That's an understatement.
1: And, you know, just tons of people over the years, Mike Serio and Seth Mangini and Mike Submire and Robert Fudge, folks that shaped the department that built like what we enjoy today. And I'd be remiss if I did not thank Randa Sully, my wonderful wife, who has been there through it all has sat in logistics rerouting crews during the rivera mesa fire and who chainsawed contour terraces after the Ponyo complex fire and who took care of my kids took care of bernard while uh i was in springer being the mayor of the fairgrounds like um you know I love her and my family and our family loves Philmont. And we believe that this can work out.